Welcome to Mentioned in Dispatches, the podcast from the Western Front Association, with me, Dr Tom Thorpe. The WFA is the UK's largest Great War History Society. We have around 6,000 members worldwide and around 50 branches. For more information, visit our website at westernfrontassociation.com. It is the 19th of June, 2023, and this is episode 305. On today's Dispatches podcast, I talk to former medical consultant, historian and author, Dr. Robertson, about her research into female doctor's service during the First World War, and spoke to me from her home in Aberdeen, Scotland. So, Anne, welcome to the Dispatches podcast. May you start by telling us about yourself and how you became interested in the Great War? Well, I'm Anne Robertson. I'm a retired medical practitioner. I qualified in 1975 from the University of Birmingham. And I've spent most of my working life working in anaesthetics. And latterly, I was a consultant in anaesthetics in Aberdeen. Um, In Aberdeen, I worked with Tom Scotland, an orthopaedic surgeon who had a, has and still has a huge interest in the Great War. Um, And he got me to write a couple of chapters on anaesthesia in World War One, and then the development of military anaesthesia in the two books that he wrote. Uh, The first one was War Surgery 1914-18, and then another one, which was like a, a prequel, really. Wars, Pestilence and the Surgeon's Blade. Um, He took also, he started once he retired, taking people, largely groups of orthopaedic surgeons, cycling on the Western Front, (laughs) which was a very enjoyable and entertaining few days uh, where we spent some time in Ypres and then some time um, actually in France, um, further south, further east. Uh, And I've been on two of those cycling tours. Um, And then Tom did for many years, when the anniversary of the armistice came round, he would give a talk to the Medical Chirurgical Society in Aberdeen, and he would enlist other people. And one year he said, Anne, right, you're going to talk about women in World War I, and you're going to talk about women doctors. Now, because three people were talking, you only had maybe 25 minutes each. So when I researched the Scottish Women's Hospitals, that was enough to fill that um, particular talk. But in researching that and in looking further, I decided that the picture was a much, much bigger one. Although the Scottish Women's Hospitals were a very big part of it, it wasn't, they weren't the only women that went overseas. So how many women were doctors before the Great War and how were they regarded by the medical profession and the wider society? Well, in in 1911, it said there were 495 women on the medical register. By 1914, there was approximately 1,100. But people had started being on the medical register, it was women, from about, it trickled in from 1870 onwards, and then during the 1890s gathered pace. So some of them by the start of the Great War were were not young. Um, I don't know how they were regarded by society in general, but most of them had to work either in mental institutions 
or in sort of community pediatric kind of things. They couldn't get jobs in mainstream hospitals. Those were all reserved for the men. If they wanted to study surgery, they could do so by going to Dublin or Vienna, and many of them did. Um, and I think a lot of them worked with uh, with women, um, gynecological maternity-type problems, which were not well done at the time, and particularly poor women didn't have much ex- access to um, hospitals. So I, I imagine that in certain areas where they worked, they were held in high regard by society. So when the when we have the the outbreak of war in August 1914, were these uh, women doctors actually utilised by the British military in the in the opening months of the war? And if not, why not? Well, it wasn't regarded that women doctors were needed or would be useful or knew what to do. And the Royal Army Medical Corps, as you probably know, had a good system for recruiting doctors. It had a lot of male doctors, but it didn't want women. It just didn't want them. They were to be no use whatsoever. But if you go back slightly before the Great War, in 1912 there was a war in Bulgaria. And two or three years before then, a redoubtable lady called Annie um, Sinclair Stobart, she was a, a county lady from Dorset, decided that if women were to have the vote, then they had to prove themselves in a theatre of war, not by fighting, but by um, but by showing that they could withstand the pressures of war. So she started way back in about 1908 what she called the Women's Sick and Wounded Convoy Corps. And she, get, she, she housed them at Studland in Dorset in tents, and they learnt... They learnt um, First aid, they learned signalling, they learned cookery, um, anything that might be useful. She, she was very against this idea of the VADs and their three-year training. Um, so when the Bulgarian war broke out, off she went to Bulgaria and said to them there, would you like some help? And they said, oh, yes, please. So she um, went off with a wounded sick and convoy corps and three women doctors. It wasn't terribly well supported because Britain was supposed to be neutral. Um, but she, they spent a, a couple of months there, during which time they proved that women could do what was necessary. So, um, but that doesn't seem to have had any, um, any. It, it didn't seem to help them at the beginning of uh, World War One. Um, the British military just didn't want them. But women did serve abroad as doctors, and many used their skills in places like uh, Bulgaria and Serbia. Why did they volunteer to go to those theatres, I suppose, and why were they allowed to go to those theatres? Well, what they did when, when, well, when the Great War broke out, um, the War Office sent them packing, really. Some of them knew not to even try, but uh, Elsie Ingalls, who did, went off to the War Office and she was told to go home, my good lady, and sit still. So off they went uh, to the French Red Cross and to the Serbian Red Cross and said, would you like some help? And France was struggling because it it was losing a lot of soldiers at the beginning of the Great War. And Serbia was really a very, very impoverished country. They didn't have terribly good 
medical services in any case. So that's how they were employed. They were employed through the Red Crosses. And where else did they serve uh, during the First World War? Um, Well, obviously a little bit in Belgium. Um, They also served in in Russia at one point when Russia and Romania uh, became part of the uh, Eastern Allied Offensive. Um, And a lot of them, and and this isn't written about very much, a lot of them went and worked with refugees, Belgian refugees in in France. They went to Russia. They went to, um, well, all kinds of places where the refugees might be. And because these refugees came with a whole lot of medical problems, the the women doctors were, were used a lot. It wasn't just that these people were refugees and they needed fed. Um, they also needed a lot of medical care. So tell me about some of their stories. Well, <clears throat> that's one of the most difficult things to do because there are so, so many stories that where do you start? So I've, got, I've picked out a few. Um, the first lady I'd like to talk about is a lady called Alice Hutchison. Now, she was born in 1874 in Dalhousie in India. Her father was a a missionary um, who worked for the Church of Scotland. She graduated from Edinburgh in 1903. Now, she was one of the three women doctors that went to Bulgaria. So when the Scottish Women's Hospital started up, which was started up by a lady called Elsie Ingalls, I'll talk a bit more about her later on, she was the first doctor that they sent abroad to see what was going on with it. She went with a handful of nurses. But when she got to um, Belgium, there was a whole there was a whole typhoid outbreak. A lot of Belgian soldiers, uh, injured soldiers in a typhoid outbreak. And they said, please just stay and help. So she asked for more doctors and more nurses and they arrived. So she was the first person to actually go across with the with the Scottish Women's Hospitals. But she also later on went off to Serbia with a different Scottish Women's Hospital unit. There were there were four U- women's hospital, Scottish Women's Hospital units in Serbia in the early part of the war. Um, and she went with a tented unit, which they set up and they worked. Now, um, Serbia was fighting desperately to keep its independence through the beginning of 1915, but it, it really didn't manage to do so. It was eventually overrun by Austro-Hungarians and Bulgarians. It was attacked from two sides. And there was a point at which these people, these women were told, right, you've got to go, you've got to evacuate, you can't stay here. And many of them did. They made this terrible route over the mountains of Albania to the sea, along with a whole lot of refugees soldiers, boys, women, children. There, was a, there wasn't a, a death rate among these women, but there was a death rate, generally speaking. Um, and it was a terrible journey. But Alice Hutchison and Elsie Ingalls were with different units and they decided to stay. Um, they decided to stay and, 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 and work on until eventually both of them were made prisoners of war. Um, and then um, you weren't supposed to make medical personnel prisoners of war, but that didn't stop them. And they were eventually repatriated. Um, and Alice Hutchison worked in London after the war. Now, if I'm to talk about Elsie Ingalls, she is this lady that started the 
Scottish women's hospitals. Now, she was born in 1864, again in India, and she qualified in 1892. So she wasn't terribly young when the Great War broke out. She would have been, what, about 50. And she'd set up hospitals for women and children in, in Edinburgh. She was the one who went to the Foreign Office and got told to go home and sit still. So she thought, well, okay. Um, she'd already tried. There was another unit that went across um, and started a hospital in Paris. And they'd already got enough doctors at that time. So she didn't, she wasn't able to go with them. Um, but off she went, uh, first of all, to France when, when she set up this system of Scottish women's hospitals to find a suitable place there to start as a hospital. And then she actually went to Serbia with one of these Scottish women's hospital units. Um, and as I say, she was a prisoner of war and eventually repatriated. Now, when nine, in 1916, the Russians became involved um, in the war on the Eastern Front, along with Romania, the Russians asked for a Scottish women's hospital unit to go with them because there were a lot of Slavs actually serving in the Russian army. So they wanted her to lead this unit, and she wasn't keen to go. She really wasn't keen to go for one reason or another. But she did, and they couldn't get through to Romania via the Dardanelles, so they had to take a boat up to Archangel in the northern part of Russia. And remember, they got with them, uh, they got lorries, they got drivers, they got equipment, they got tents, and they had to take all this lot down on by trains all the way to where they worked. Um, they got pushed back out of Romania um, after a while, but they carried on working. Now, around about September 1917, Elsie Ingalls was ill, and she couldn't work anymore. She had to retire to her tent. Um, but it was another month before they could make the journey back up to Archangel and get home. And they arrived in Newcastle in November 1917. And Elsie Ingalls asked another of the doctors to take everybody back up to Edinburgh because she herself was too ill and she died a day later. Um, her exploits were known. And she, um, when her coffin was taken through the streets of Edinburgh, it was lined with people. And she was laid to rest in Dean's Cemetery there. And then later on, there was a service down in St. Margaret's, Westminster, um, to give thanks for her life. Um, that's a couple of the Scottish Women's Hospital doctors. There were, although some people went out with Scottish Women's Hospitals, some people went out with the Red Cross, some people went out with the Serbian Relief Fund. There were some individuals who just did their own thing because that's what their women were like. And there were two ladies, one called Caroline Matthews and one called Elizabeth Ross. And both of them were working abroad at the time, one in Persia and one somewhere else. They knew there were problems and they just arrived in, in Serbia and they offered their services and they both worked in Serbian hospitals. Now, what happened in Serbia at the beginning of 1915 was that there was a mammoth typhus outbreak. Um, Typhus was difficult to treat at the time. It, 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 you can give antibiotics for it, but of course they didn't have that. They just had good nursing care. And the typhus came really with the Austro-Hungarian prisoners. Um, and, and they really didn't know this was going to happen. They just arrived in the middle of it. Now, Caroline Matthews worked in one hospital, befriended the Scottish Women's Hospital 
people and but didn't um didn't seem to contract typhus and she was eventually also made um a prisoner of war and she ended up with Alice Hutchison's lot um Elizabeth Ross who came from the north of Scotland um she went to work in a typhus hospital and she actually got typhus and succumbed to it and died and she was nursed by a nurse called Louisa Jordan and the um, hospital in Glasgow that was opened for the COVID epidemic was named the Louisa Jordan Hospital because she caught typhoid and died as well. And Elizabeth Ross is still venerated very much in Serbia and they have an annual commemoration uh, for her life. Um, other people, um, I was mentioning before Louise McElroy. Now, Louise McElroy was born in 1877 in County Antrim. She was the first woman to complete medical studies in Glasgow. She qualified in 1898, and she was awarded a Glasgow MD two years later. She did some postgraduate work in London, Berlin, and Vienna before coming back to Glasgow and working as a gynecological surgeon. Now, she joined the Scottish Women's Hospital Unit, and in May 1915, she headed what was called the Girton and Newnham unit because all the money for that unit had been raised in those Cambridge um, colleges. And she set up a tented hospital at Troyes, the French asked for this. They were quite impressed by what had gone on in the other Scottish Women's Hospital unit and they liked their doctoresses and they said, please can you come and open a tented hospital at Troyes, which they did for a short while. But then they were asked to go to Salonika, which um, where they felt that they were assembling a lot of troops and that people would be able to advance into Serbia and free Serbia. Um, the expeditionary forces were gathering there. And on the 20th of October 1915, they sailed from Marseille. Um, they thought they were going to go into Serbia, but of course they got caught. This great retreat happened and they, it couldn't happen. They had to come back into Salonika, where they had a tented hospital on the outskirts of the town. It had very poor drainage. There was a lot of typhoid there, but they weren't there for most of the war. Um, it was other units that actually went into Serbia later on. Uh, she started at what was known as the Calcutta Orthopaedic Unit, doing orthopaedic work on injured Serbian soldiers. And at the end of the war, um, it was suggested she went to Belgrade to start up what would be an Elsie Ingalls hospital. But it wasn't a terribly successful venture, to be honest. Um, it didn't seem to work terribly well. And she spent a little bit of time in Constantinople, Constantinople with the Royal Army Medical Corps, before she went back to England. And in 1925, she became the first woman medical professor and later on was made a dame for her services to medicine. So she really was um, a very high achieving lady. Um, and she worked until she was nearly 70. Um, you, I know that from Northern Ireland, you've got this lady that you know, Isabel Abbey Tate. Now, Isabel Tate went off with a Serbian relief front unit um, to work in Serbia in 1915. And she also opened dis uh, dispensaries. When, when the 
the typhus epidemic tended to stop the war for a few months. But then there seemed to be plenty of work for these people to do in the surrounding villages where they were. So Isabel Tate went off and opened a dispensary there. But she did contract typhoid and she had to go home. Um, But later on in the war, although the army didn't want women doctors at the beginning of the war, it did request um, in 1916 that they would need women doctors to go and serve um, in Malta, where a lot of injured soldiers were arriving. Um, So Isabel Tate um, went off to Malta, worked there for a while, but the typhoid that she contracted earlier on eventually got the better of her and she died um, and is buried in Malta. Um, There were also a number of doctors that came across from Australia, a number of women doctors. um, And one who came across, who perhaps isn't very widely spoken about, was Laura Forster. She was born in 1858. um, And when she came across, she actually worked in a British field hospital for the Red Cross, the British Field Red Cross Hospital in Antwerp in 1914. And Antwerp eventually was bombed and these people had to retreat very quickly out of Antwerp and did so on uh, a pile of London buses, which they seemed to have with them. Um, She also was somebody who went to help refugees. She went to France to help wounded Belgians. She went to Russia and worked in Petrograd. Um, She joined the Russian Red Cross and went across the Caucasus to Turkey. And there was also something called the Millicent Fawcett units. Millicent Fawcett was a suffragette and they they raised money and sent these people across. Um, She is another one who died in 1917. It was just so much hard work that she had subjected herself to and she died of heart failure in at the age of 58. She's buried in what is now Western Ukraine. Um, I could go on forever about women doctors, but I think that's probably... <laughs> you mentioned covers the, their stories, generally speaking. And you, you mentioned that a number uh, become casualties during the war. Was it quite common for female doctors to suffer um, ill health and, uh, in some cases, death during their service? Yes, yes. There was quite a number who who died, um, nobody was actually shot or bombed. That didn't happen to anybody. It happened to somebody who led, a, a, somebody unfortunately got shot in Serbia, but she was somebody leading a, a transport unit. But none of the doctors or nurses um, were injured in that way. But they caught, first of all, they got caught in the typhus outbreak and, and a few of them died. Um, and then typhoid was a real problem you see the problem in Serbia was it was really cold and that's where the typhus liked to um profligate if you like but the uh but typhoid was a big problem in Salonika and malaria and um, there was malaria there as well so a lot of them got a kind of chronic ill health and some of them succumbed to it um I don't know that there was a huge number out the number that served but there was there was quite a few and these these women are actually all the women that died in the Great War are commemorated um, in York Minster. There's a five sisters window in York Minster, um, which is dedicated the, to the women that died in World War One. And underneath there are a series of plaques that you can sort of open up and read all the names. And um, your Lady Isabel Aditate is there 
um, among with Elsie Ingalls and uh, and the others, Laura Forster and these other people who who succumbed. And were any of them decorated for their service during the war? Right. Yes, they were. Um, somebody in in 1914 was given the Order of Leopold of Belgium. Another Australian doctor um, called Is- Isabel Ormiston. She was working at the Queen of the Belgians Hospital in Ostend. And when Ostend was overrun, she just stayed. I mean, she was there in the bombing. Um, and she was made a prisoner of war of the invading army until all the British prisoners were expelled um, in late October. Um, in France, I haven't mentioned really the Scottish Women's Hospital's major um, outlet in France, which was in a in an abbey called Guayamon, close to Soissons. And the head of that unit, one Frances Ivans, she worked as a head of the unit for most of the war. And that was quite unusual for somebody to remain in a post for so long. Uh, not only did they fall ill, but they fell out with each other from time to time as well. As you might imagine, many women working together. Now, she was given the Légion d'honneur. She was the first woman to receive that. Um, and 23 members of that unit were given the Croix de Guerre, um, largely for their work in what was a sort of outpost. In 1918, when they knew that there was going to be a big push, they were requested to have an outpost at a place called Ville Cotteret. Um, And they went and worked there, set up a hospital. um, And uh, most of the people who received the Croix de Guerre got it for that. Uh, One of the things that I haven't mentioned, if I can just diversify, is that wherever these women went, they were given a building this will be your hospital. And this started in Bulgaria. Um, it was in this abbey at Guayamon. It was in different places in Belgium and different places in Serbia. And they just set about cleaning these places and setting them up as hospitals and getting them wired, getting lit, getting hot water, all these things. It was something they seemed to be particularly good at. When it came to Serbia, Elsie Ingalls and another Scottish lady called Isabel Emsley were given the Order of the White Eagle, which I believe is a very high award. And others got the Order of St. Sava or the Royal Red Cross or the Serbian Samaritan Cross. Um, as regards sort of British military medals, well, there was a, uh, an Australian lady called Phoebe Chapel, and she came across um, in 1917 intending to join the Scottish Women's Hospitals. But actually... She was made an honorary captain in the Royal Army Medical Corps attached to the Women's Army Auxiliary Corps. And she was at a hospital at a WAAC base near Abbeville during an air raid in in May 1918, when a bomb exploded in a covered trench, which was used by women as a shelter. Uh, Eight were killed, nine were wounded, one seriously. And she worked in the dark for hours in this tunnel, moving through the trench, tending to the wounded. And for this, she was re- received the military men- medal. Now, had she been a, a, a male doctor, she would have had a commission and she would have got the military cross. But she didn't. She got the military medal, which she received at Buckingham Palace in June 1919. And what impact did the service of these female doctors have on their post-war professional careers and personal life? Well, on their professional careers, not a lot. 
Despite the fact that many young male doctors were killed during the Great War, when they went back, they still didn't get posts in hospitals that they wanted. Nobody said, well done, you've done a great job, come and, come and have a surgical registrar job. No, they were, they were again, a lot of them went abroad, they did missionary work, because then they could actually do the work they wanted. Um, but yet again, they went to work in, in um, asylums, um, and sort of children's work, that kind of thing, but not the hospital work they'd have wanted to do, except for the odd person like um, Louise McElroy, who really did make a name for herself. Um, what did they have, have on their personal lives? Um, well, that's a difficult one to say. Um, some of them got married, some of them met their husbands abroad, and they got married and carried on working to an extent, others didn't. Um one or two were chronically sick, I think, from the malaria that they'd got in Serbia. Um, but otherwise, a bit difficult to say what effect it had on their personal lives. And my final question is, where can people learn more about these women and your work? Well, this is very, this is a sore point, really, because I have gathered loads and loads of information. And I know that there's, although... Most of these things have been written about as individual escapades and people have written their own books on their experience. Nobody's put everything together in one one big book. Um, I've kind of missed Armistice, if you know what I mean, uh, or the, the anniversary of Armistice to do this. But um, So there's no way you can read about my women's doctor's work. You can only read about anaesthesia in World War One in this book and military anesthesia in this book. So um, I hate to admit it, really, but I have never actually... It, it's, it is a, there is so much to write about, and the um, information is in libraries and universities all over the country. So it would be a large undertaking. A PhD for somebody, maybe. Um, well, you'd have, to, you'd have to direct it in a certain question. My, my only desire would be to record what they'd done and we start off with the women's wounded sick and transport corps and mrs stobart and then we'd move towards um well there were, there were different things that went on the women's hospital corps different things that went off to france and then the scottish women's hospitals the serbian relief funds the work with refugees um and some of the post-war work that they did um there's a lot to write about and you've given us an introduction to some of it. So thank you very much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. That's great. I'll switch that. You have been listening to the Mentioned in Dispatches podcast from the Western Front Association with me, Tom Thorpe. Thank you for all my guests for appearing on this edition. The theme music for this podcast was George Buthworth's The Banks of Green Willow. It was performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales conducted by Chris Rusman and produced by Biz Records. This recording is part of a collection of orchestral works by Butterworth performed by the BBC National Orchestra of Wales and supported by the Western Front Association. This is available from all good record stores under the record code BIS2195. Until next time.